And Lord, we come right now before you and we pray that this inspired word penned some 2,000 years ago would live in the hearts of your people, that it would instruct your people, that it would motivate us towards holiness and towards service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning I want to direct your attention to a phrase found in verse 21 as we begin. And verse 21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. The phrase I want you to consider is useful to the master. Now, I don't, I don't know of very many other things in life that I would rather be than useful to my master. Can you say amen to that? We want to be useful. We want God to use us in His purposes and His plans. And God is, God is doing something. God has an eternal plan that He's fulfilling. But what a great joy to have the Lord say, Okay, I'm going to let you come in and be part of the thing I'm doing, and you get to share it with me. You get to be part of the working out of what I have predestined to occur from the foundation of the world. What a beautiful, wonderful thing that is. And here... The Apostle Paul is telling Timothy how Timothy can be useful. Useful to the Master. Now back in chapter 2, verse 14, he's speaking about false teachers and their false teaching. And he says about them that they wrangle about words, which is useless. So there is something that is useless, and that is false teachers who wrangle about words having these word battles, speculations about Jewish myths and genealogies. That's useless, he says. But then over in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, When you come, pick up Mark and bring him with you because he is useful to me for service. So there is something in the book of Second Timothy that's useless. That's false teachers and their teaching. There is someone else who's lifted up as someone who's useful. And remember, there was a time in Mark's life when he was not useful to Paul. He deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and he went back home. We don't know why, but we know that he did desert the group. And from that moment on, Paul would not allow John Mark to join them. He felt it was a bad risk to have this man who had already proved that he was a deserter. Well, God had been working in John Mark's life over the years, and he has been maturing him and growing him. And at this time in John Mark's life, he's useful. He's changed from useless to useful. And that's what we want to be. We want to be useful to our master. Now, as we work our way through the passage, remember that in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is teaching Timothy about the Christian life and he's using various metaphors. There's three metaphors in the first half of the chapter and then there's three metaphors in the last half of the chapter. In the first half of the chapter, he says the Christian life is like being a soldier. It's like being an athlete. It's like being a farmer. The Christian is like a soldier in that he must suffer hardship. And he must not get entangled in the affairs of everyday life. He's like an athlete because he has to compete according to God's rules. God's rules is the Word of God, His revealed will laid down in Scripture. And the Christian is also like a farmer in that he's got to be constantly planting seed and he's got to work really hard and wait for the end, the harvest to come. Now, he gives three more metaphors in the last half of the chapter. The metaphor of the workman, the vessel, and the servant. We've already seen the workman. That's in verse 15. He says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So in contrast to the false teachers and what they're doing, you need to be different. You need to be diligent so that when you handle God's word, you do it accurately. You cut it straight. You're like a workman that's cutting hides and you make that, that cut straight. But then the last two metaphors come up in our section today. And it's the metaphor of the clean vessel and the kind servant. And if you and I want to be useful to our master, we must be clean vessels and we must be kind servants. And so we want to focus on those last two illustrations that he gives so that we can see how we can be useful. Okay, let's jump in then with the clean vessel. Now, we need to back up to verse 19 to get a running flow here. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. 
So here we're introduced to a foundation. Now, of course, a foundation is that which supports some kind of a building, right? Some kind of a structure. And that's why when we go to verse 20, he starts talking about a building. Now in a large house, which is built upon the foundation of verse 19, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. So here we're told that the visible church is like a very large house. And within this very large house, there's all kinds of vessels. There's valuable vessels and cheap, inexpensive vessels. Some of these vessels are made out of very precious materials like gold and silver, and some are made out of cheap materials like wood and clay, earthenware. And he says, the expensive ones, those are the vessels for honor. The cheap ones, those are the vessels for dishonor. So here we have a foundation laid, and he tells us what that foundation is. He says it has a seal on it, and the seal goes like this. The Lord knows those who are His. And the flip side, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. So this foundation has a seal, actually a double seal. One of the seals is the God word side, and the other is the man word side. One is God's free, eternal, sovereign election of His people. He knows those who are His. He's known them from all eternity. It doesn't matter how many false teachers come through or what they say, God will keep His own to the end. His elect cannot be fatally and finally deceived. The Lord knows those who are His. But the, the flip side is this, that everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, how many of you here this morning name the name of the Lord? Okay, God's charge to you then is you must abstain from wickedness. And when Paul tells us those final words, it keys his thought into, okay, abstaining from wickedness, sanctification, holiness. And it starts him in this new vein of thought, starting in verse 20, where he's going to talk to us about clean vessels. So that's where we want to go this morning. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul says to the Corinthians, You are God's field, God's building. So when he tells us here there's a large house filled with these vessels, it shouldn't make us surprised because we have the same analogy given in other places. The church is God's building. In fact, he says in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. Now notice some phrases here. The whole building. A holy temple. A dwelling of God. Paul keeps on emphasizing the fact that the church is like a building. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's laid on the foundation of Christ himself, then the prophets and the apostles, but it is a building that's growing up unto the Lord. And Peter himself says in 1 Peter 2.5 that we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. So the church is like, or the visible church is like a building, filled with these different vessels. Now, We've got two kinds of vessels here, don't we? Honorable and dishonorable. Seems to me that when you think about these two kinds of vessels, you, you can actually picture them. The honorable vessel, picture that in your mind. It's made out of gold and silver. It's a beautiful, exquisite vase. It's meant to be lifted up and put on the mantelpiece so that when you walk by... Or your guests and visitors, when they walk by, they can stop and admire the beauty of that piece and just enjoy it. It's a vessel for honor. It's lifted up into a place of prominence. But then every house also will have vessels for dishonor. What do we call those? Garbage cans. <laughs> Garbage cans or ashtrays. Or if you chew tobacco, spittoons, where you spit that ugly, foul tobacco into. Those are vessels, and they have a purpose, but they're vessels for dishonor rather than vessels for honor. 
And I don't believe that Paul is contrasting two different kinds of Christians so much as he's contrasting two different kinds of teachers in this passage. Because remember, verses 14 to 19 is all about the false teachers there at Ephesus. And then he's saying, in every large house, in the visible church, you're going to have two kinds of vessels. Vessels for honor, vessels for dishonor. Therefore, I believe that he's contrasting what Timothy must be, which is a good and righteous, accurate, faithful teacher of the Word of God with a vessel for dishonor, which is an inaccurate, unfaithful teacher of the Word of God, which is what he's just been expounding on. In fact, in verse 23, verse 23 he's also going to tell us, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. That's what these false teachers were doing. So, the, the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, how can we be clean vessels. How can we be a clean vessel? Well, let's look at the text. Number one, verse 21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor. He must cleanse himself from these things. Now, if you have a New American Standard, you'll notice that the word things is in italics. You know what that means? Yeah, it's not in the original. It was supplied by the translators. Well, let's just take it out for a minute. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these, he'll be a vessel for honor. Who has he just been talking about in verse 20? The vessels of dishonor, which are the false teachers. I believe that's what he means here. If anyone cleanses himself from the corrupting influence of these false teachers and instead is faithful to the word of God, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. If you don't look at it that way, you find it a a very difficult task of actually deciding what did he mean by these things. You could go back through the whole letter, I guess, and find everything negative in it, but the immediate context shows us that he's talking about vessels for dishonor who wrangle about words, who are involved in worldly and empty chatter, whose talk is spreading like gangrene, who are involved in uh, these speculations that are going nowhere. And so, number one, if we want to be vessels for honor, useful to the Master, if we want to be clean vessels, we need to cleanse ourselves from the corrupting influences of false teaching and people who are just babbling on about nothing inconsequential and keep our focus on what is true. That is the Word of God. So we need to cleanse ourselves from these particular things, separate ourselves. And so he's been talking to us about the effects of false teaching, which are, it leads to the ruin of the hearers, he says. It produces ungodliness. It's like gangrene. We knew We know that gangrene is like uh, cancer and it spreads throughout the body, spreading decay and death throughout the rest of the body. Uh, It is involved in these these foolish speculations which produce quarrels. So the result of the false teachers are quarreling, ungodliness, gangrene. It overturns the faith of some. It's just nothing good. And so if we want to be a clean, useful vessel, we need to separate ourselves from all of that garbage and rely upon the truth. Sound, wholesome doctrine. Now he mentions a couple of people here in chapter 2 that were involved in the false teaching. He mentions them by name. Hymenaeus and Philetus. And if we went back to 1 Timothy, we'd also get the name of another fellow involved in this. His name is Alexander. He says, don't be like those guys. They're teaching that the resurrection has already taken place. They're capsizing the faith of some. Their their faith has already suffered shipwreck, he says. You don't want to follow in their train. Instead, you need to follow in the train of the Apostle Paul. And Timothy, you need to be a good workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. So, for us here at the bridge, my exhortation to you is, follow after truth. And of course, sometimes that's difficult to discern, especially if you're a young Christian. Because you say, well, I turn on my Christian radio and I see this guy telling me that and this guy telling me this. Who am I supposed to believe? It, it requires maturity. It requires you to be in the Word of God. You don't expect the first year of your Christian life to have the, the discernment you're going to have after 30 years. But I would urge you to be 
men and women of this book, of the Word of God. Read it every day, meditate on it, memorize it, let it become part of the warp and woof of your life, the fabric of your soul, so that you begin to guide yourself by this book, not by the attitudes of the world that come across to you through television or the internet or radio, because you'll have all kinds of things like that. That's simply worldliness. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we need to cleanse ourselves from things that are false. And if you're having a hard time discerning that, if you're a younger Christian, talk to someone who's been walking with the Lord 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years, and who is a person of the book, and I'm sure they can help you with that. So cleanse ourselves from false teaching. Number two, he tells us to flee from youthful lusts. Verse 22, now flee from youthful lusts. In verse 22, he tells us to run from something and to run to something. We are to run from youthful lusts. We are to run to righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And the word flee here is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean run. It means run for your life. It's like a murderer is after you with a knife and he wants to stab you to death. And the only way you can escape is to run fast as you've ever run in your life. That's what the word means here. It's the word John the Baptist used when he said to the uh, people of his day, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Run for your life. Escape from the wrath of God. Escape from danger. It's the word Jesus used in Matthew 23 when he was speaking to the Pharisees. And he said, How can you think that you're going to escape the sentence of hell? The word escape is the word for flee. Escape from hell. Flee from the wrath of God. So it's, it's knowing that youthful lusts are dangerous to your soul. And that if you give yourself to those youthful lusts, you will end up facing the wrath of God, proving that you're not saved at all in the end. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll what? You'll live. You'll live. He gives us a way that we can identify who is going to live, who's going to end up in glory one day. It's people that put to death the deeds of the body. People that pursue holiness. So, flee from youthful lusts. Run from them. Run from them with all your might. Now, what are these youthful lusts that we are to flee from? Well, probably the very first thing that would come into your mind, it's the one that came into mind, are sexual temptations. Those are the things we think about when we think about youthful lusts. And... Paul is telling Timothy, don't fondle them, don't flirt with them, don't see how close you can come to them and still survive in your Christian life. He's saying, get away, run. Does it remind you of anybody in the Old Testament who actually did that? <laughs> Joseph, yeah, yeah. His, his master's mistress was seeking to seduce him and he actually left his garments in her hands and ran. He ran for his life. He ended up actually being arrested and thrown in prison for that. But he did what was righteous in the sight of God that day. He said, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? So we are not to try to toe the line and you know get close enough to intrigue us, but no, we are to stay away as far as we can. And so sexual temptation is something that we need to fight against. John Owen once made this statement. He said, if you don't know who John Owen is, he's a Puritan theologian, a brilliant man from the 1600s. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.13. If we do not put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, we will not live. Sin will kill us. <coughs> And so, let me just speak to you folks, speak to all of us, including myself, about the importance of fleeing youthful lusts. And this may apply more to the men than to the women. I don't know because I'm not a woman. But 
We live in a day and age, don't we, where it is, I think, probably harder than ever before to remain pure because we're in a visually driven society where we've got television images. If you watch television, if you go on the Internet, things can pop up and you didn't even, they just come. People know how to advertise and they know that sex sells. We have billboards. You're just driving down the road, going to work, and there's billboards on the right and on the left. Um, there are books and magazines everywhere. And I mean, if we went back two or three hundred years, people didn't have to contend with all of this because the media, all of those forms of media, or at least most of them, were not even there. But you and I are going to have to fight for our lives when it comes to these youthful lusts. And so, what do we do? Well, we have to have a game plan, don't we? We have to decide, okay, if I'm going to watch TV, I need to decide before I turn on the set or go into that room where it's already on, what am I going to allow myself to watch and what am I not going to allow myself to watch? might be good for us just to turn off our TVs and not watch them at all. I don't know that we'd really lose that much. We might gain a whole lot. Um, If you're going to go on the Internet, you need to have a game plan. It's a good idea to find a filter where you can filter the things that you can view on the Internet. And uh, give the password to your wife if you're married. So that she knows it and you don't. And you can't change it. Just a good, wise thing to do. Um, Have a game plan when you know you're going to be subjected to images of any kind. Whether it's magazines or books or whatever. Uh, These are things that we just have to fight. We have to fight. At the end of Paul's life, he said in 1 Timothy chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Now, youthful lust can apply to other things as well, though. Youthful lust could apply to money and possessions. Sometimes young people love, and old people do too, we, we love certain toys and trinkets. Maybe it's a new car or a boat or something we have our eye on and that just becomes our our God, our idol. We become covetous. So it can be that. It can also be the pride of position or prominence or reputation or which everybody knows my name kind of a thing and we want to be lifted up and have this position. So whatever the lust happens to be that you struggle with, flee. Run from it. Fight it. Get away from it. Like, just picture that lust as a man coming after you with a knife wanting to stab your heart out. Get away. So he says, number one, separate yourself from the influence of false teachers. Number two, flee from youthful lusts. And then number three, there are things that he tells us that we must pursue. Pursue godliness. I've summed all these up in the word godliness. But he tells us about four things that we are to pursue here. And the word pursue means to run after or chase down. It's the usual word in our New Testaments for persecute. You may not have known that and it may not make sense originally, but think about it. When someone is a persecutor, what are they doing? Yeah, they're going after people to get them. It, it's, it's Saul of Tarsus. Picture him going into town after town, house after house, dragging off people, putting them in chains, taking them to Jerusalem where they would be imprisoned or executed. Paul says we're to be like Saul of Tarsus, but we're not chasing people down to persecute them. We're chasing down virtue. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace are the things we are to be running after and laying hold of for our own life. So the Christian life is not just avoiding sin, it's also running after virtue. And let's talk about those virtues for a minute. The first one he mentions is righteousness. Righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, it's to live right, isn't it? The righteousness Paul is talking about here is not our justification. He's writing to people who have already been justified and he's telling them to pursue righteousness. So this is not our standing before God where he counts you righteous because of your faith in Christ. Paul assumes that those who trust in Christ have that standing. They've been reckoned righteous through faith. This is a practical righteousness where our lives are being conformed to the will of God. You could even say to the law of God. And there is a good use of God's law. We don't reject law as Christians simply because we're not under it. 
Yes, it's true. We're not under it and we're under its curse. We're not under it in terms of being justified, but it tells us the life that is pleasing to God. And so a righteous life is a life lived in conformity to the revealed will of God. And we would start with our New Testament, the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles, such as rejoice always and everything give thanks. Pray without ceasing. Love your enemies. All of the New Testament imperatives are the revealed will of God. And to live a righteous life means we go to our Bibles and we live out what we read there. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. So we are to seek it, just like Paul tells us here. Pursue it. Run after it. Seek it. So my question to you is, does that characterize your daily life? Are you seeking after righteousness day by day? Are you opening up this Bible, reading what it says, and then you find the revealed will of God? Do you pray and say, God, help me to do what I've just read? Fill me with your power, your spirit, to do what I've just read you're commanding me to do. Well, the second virtue he mentions is faith. Pursue righteousness, faith. Now, he's not telling them to pursue faith in order to be saved, because they are saved. He's, he's talking about the faith that lays hold of the promises of God and believes God's word. You see, there's different levels of faith. You can have saving faith, but there's also the gift of faith, according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And actually, our faith can grow as Christians. Over in Romans chapter 4, Paul talks about Abraham. And he says that he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. So Abraham grew in faith, just as God wants you and I to grow in faith. He wants us to take a particular need in our life, to open up God's word and see what it has to say about that particular need. And if there is a promise for that need, lay hold of that promise and believe God for it. Say, okay, Lord, this is what your word says. I believe it. I trust you. I'm going to wait expectantly for you to do what you promised to do in your word. The Bible says that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So the next time you have a financial need, spread out Romans 4.19 before the Lord and say, Okay, Lord, you promised. Now that is a promise to a particular person. The particular person is those who give sacrificially. If you read the book of Romans, you'll find that out. These people were giving to the Apostle Paul's ministry. And Paul turns around and says, Okay, God is going to supply your need. So if you are a a sacrificial, generous giver, you can trust that God is going to provide whatever need you run into. So we grow in faith. We grow in faith as we learn to apply the promises of God to specific needs within our own life. And then the third virtue is peace. Peace. There was all kinds of unrest in the church at Ephesus, wasn't there? Quarrels, bickering, fighting, wrangling about words, word battles. All of this was happening there within the church at Ephesus. Paul says to Timothy, pursue peace. Be a peacemaker. Seek not to spread strife any longer. Bring the brethren together. And he's going to tell them how to do that in the last half of this chapter. We'll get, we're going to get to that in a minute. But pursue peace. In fact, in Romans twelve fourteen, Paul says, Pursue peace and the sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. So we are to be peacemakers. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes it isn't possible, right? Because it takes two people to be at peace with each other. But you can do your part. You can let it go, you can forgive, you can lay down, you can bury the hatchet, whatever it is, and you can just say, okay, I'm done with that fight. I'm not going to fight anymore. I just want to be at peace with my brother and my sister. So we're to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Notice what he says next. And do that with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Very important. Don't gloss over that. (laughs) Now, who are these people? Who are those who call on the Lord from a pure heart? Romans 10.13 says, Those who call on the Lord shall be saved. Who are those who call on the Lord from a pure heart then? 
genuine believers. Right? Notice they're not calling on the Lord from a false heart, but from a pure heart. These are genuine Christians. So Paul says, pursue these virtues, but do them with other Christians. That's why it is crazy for us to try to grow in holiness if we seclude ourselves from fellowship with other Christians. We're just shooting ourselves in the foot. Have you ever had that mindset? Well, I'll just kind of stay home from church and I'll read my Bible at home and that's just as good as being with the church. No, it's not. It's not just as good. God has designed that you and I as Christians be around other Christians. And I don't know about you, but I know for myself that I am stimulated. I am stimulated to grow in my faith by being around other brothers and sisters. It happens all the time. That's why we have this little body ministry thing that we do on Sundays. I'm hoping that people are going to be stimulating other people to love and good deeds, just like he says in Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, in Hebrews 10, it tells us that the reason we gather together and we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves, but we gather together, the reason is so that we can stimulate one another. And it's not just the pastor stimulating the flock. It's all God's people stimulating all God's people to love and good deeds. And that's why the brothers come down to this building at 6 a.m. on Tuesday mornings and pray. That's why we come on Thursday mornings at 6 a.m. to study the Bible. That's why we come here on Sunday mornings. That's why we have prayer meetings. That's why the church gathers in every form and fashion. That's why we go and have lunch together after church. It's not just so that we can have lunch. It's so that we can be stimulating one another to love and good deeds. So if you want to grow in holiness, do not absent... What's the word? Exempt yourself from the loving, stimulating environment of the local church. Be all in. Whenever the church meets, be there. Because it's for your own good. And also, God is going to use you to help somebody else. So, if we're together, share with other people a scripture the Lord has been using in your life. Share with them a verse you've been memorizing. Talk about the person that you were able to witness to. Just, Just make that the common culture of the bridge where this is just stuff we do all the time because this is what we're supposed to be doing all the time stimulate each other pursue righteousness faith love and peace with those who call on the Lord that's everybody else that you know that's a believer from a pure heart so that's the answer to the question how can we be clean vessels We can do it by cleansing ourselves from false teaching, fleeing youthful lusts, pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, what's going to be the result? No, I should say it this way. What will the result be? Let me try a third time here. (laughs) Third time's a charm. What will result from being a clean vessel? If we are a clean vessel, what will result from that? Well, he tells us, He tells us in verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. There are four things that result from being a clean vessel. Number one, he will be a vessel for honor. He'll be a vessel for honor instead of a vessel for dishonor. Now, I said earlier that every vessel serves a purpose. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that vessel in your house. A garbage can serves a purpose, doesn't it? An ashtray serves a purpose. So does a vase. So does beautiful china that costs hundreds of dollars. All of it serves a particular purpose. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul talks in a different, in a different place. He talks about vessels for honor and vessels for common use. And I thought it would be helpful for us to read that passage because it throws light on the purpose that God is going to receive from every vessel. And there is a sense in which every person in the world is a vessel. There is either a vessel for honor or a vessel for dishonor. So Romans chapter 9, verse 21. And we also have it up here on the screen if you want to follow along. Paul says, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another... For common use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so. 
in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, did you notice, verse 21, there are some that are vessels for honorable use, and there are others that are vessels for common use. Now, in the context, who are the ones that are vessels for honorable use? Yeah, okay, and if we're to use the words of the text, those that he prepared beforehand for glory, vessels of mercy, those are the ones that God has determined he will honor. What are the vessels for dishonorable or common use? There's others, he says here, I believe it's verse 22, he calls them vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, a vessel of wrath and a vessel of mercy both have a use, a purpose. And we're told that purpose here in the section. He says that vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he goes on to say, and he did so... Well, let me back up. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known? There we go. What purpose does a vessel of wrath serve? They, yeah, they enable God to show His wrath and power. They enable God to demonstrate, to put on display His wrath and His power. What purpose does a vessel of mercy or a vessel of glory serve? There you go. To demonstrate or to make known the riches of His glory. Did you know that the thing that God is intense on doing and he has been intense on doing this from the beginning of time until now, is to glorify himself. And the way he does that is put his attributes on display. He shows to his creation who he is. And that God is many faceted. God is a God of wrath and power. He's also a God of mercy and glory. And so vessels of mercy allow God the opportunity to put his wrath and power on display. They serve a purpose even though it's an ignoble purpose, a dishonorable sort of purpose. But then these other vessels, vessels of mercy, vessels of glory, vessels for honor, they allow God to demonstrate His mercy and glory. So, we want to be vessels for honor, don't we? Anybody here want to be a vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction? I don't think so. I don't think anybody, if they understood what that is, would say, yeah, I want to be that. No, we want to be vessels of mercy. We want to be vessels for honor. Psalm 16, or I'm sorry, Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So the wicked do serve a purpose. They serve God's purposes. Are you a vessel for glory? Are you a vessel of mercy? Have you repented of your sin and found mercy for your soul through the blood of Christ? Or are you kind of just ignoring Him or neglecting Him or trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God? Repenters, believers, are vessels for honor, according to the passage. Remember Jesus said, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And in uh, 1 Samuel 2.30, the Bible says, The one who honors me, I will honor. But the one who despises me, I will lightly esteem. So there are promises in God's word that if you honor Christ, God is going to honor you. How is he going to honor you? The Bible says he's going to make you to shine like the sun in the glory of your Father. He's going to tell you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. He's going to commend you before all the hosts of heaven. He's going to say things like, because you've been faithful in a few things, I'm going to make you an authority over many things. Be an authority over ten cities. He's going to reward his people, honor his people, lift up his people, cause them to shine like the sun, like the stars of the heavens. Do you want that? I sure do. So, vessels for honor. That's one of the results of being a clean vessel. We're vessels for honor. The second one is that we'll be sanctified. 
He says, therefore, if any man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means to be separated or to be set apart. You will never be set apart from sin or from the world to God if you don't clean your vessel. If your vessel's filthy, it's dirty, you allow sin just to go on in your life, you don't repent of it, you don't ask God, confess your sin and ask God to cleanse you. If you just go on in your sin, you're a dirty, filthy vessel and you will never be sanctified. Never set apart from this world to Christ. And folks, only sanctified people are going to heaven. No unsanctified person's going there. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Is anything more clear than that? If I do not pursue sanctification, I will not see the Lord. I don't care if I'm a pastor or not. And the same is true for you. We must flee sin and we must flee righteousness if we have any hope of ever seeing the Lord. So we must be sanctified. Set apart from sin. Set apart from this world and its godless values. And set apart for Christ and eternity. Then he says, useful to the Master. And that's where we began. If we want to be useful to our Master, we must have cleansed our lives from these dirty and filthy things. We can't expect God to use us if we're dirty vessels. Well, think about this. When you get up in the morning, you roll out of bed and you want a cup of coffee to try to wake up and you go to pour yourself a cup of coffee. Do you reach into the sink and take that cup that's been there a couple days and it's got all kinds of uck on the outside of it? Or do you go in your cupboard and pull out a a brand spanking new clean cup? Well, why would God be any different than us? He wants clean vessels. God wants to use clean vessels. And if we're not pursuing holiness, we can't expect that the Lord is going to, want, going, to, going to use us in a very big way. We have to be pure if we're to be useful to the Master. And then the final thing he says is prepared for every good work. An unholy man is going to mar and stain every good work he tries to do. If you're outside in the mud... And you come into the house and you say, Honey, I want to help you out today. I want to do a good work. Let me vacuum the carpet. And so you walk into the living room and you start vacuuming the carpet with your muddy boots on. Well, okay, you're trying to do a good deed, aren't you? (laughs) But you're making it worse than when you started. And if you're an unholy person and you leave sin in your life, you don't confess it, you don't turn from it, you can't expect that you're going to be someone who's able to do these good works and, and they have good results from them. There's a very godly man, a Scottish minister in the 1800s by the name of Robert Murray McShane. He died young. I believe he was 27 years old when he died, maybe 28. He made this statement. Do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean, of the heart. How diligently the cavalry, of off, the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses, so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Now, We read that and we think, an awful weapon in the hand of God? So we don't understand. When he used the word awful, he didn't mean awful like we do. He meant awesome, powerful, majestic, useful. I love those last two lines. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. So take heart. If you don't have a lot of great talents, you can still be useful to the Lord if you're like Jesus. If you're a holy man or woman. A holy minister is an awesome, awful weapon in the hand of God. So that is what results from being a clean vessel. According to our text, it results in the honor of God, sanctification, usefulness to our Master, and being prepared for every good work that the Lord would set in front of us. The Bible tells us that we're to be zealous for good deeds. Don't look at good works as something that you should shy away from. Sometimes, because we we hear so much that we're not saved by works, we think that 
good works, is some, there's something bad about it. No, there's everything good about good works. We're saved for them, according to Ephesians 2.10. So we will be prepared for every good work. Now, let's turn our attention from the clean vessel and let's look at the kind servant. This is verses 23 to 26. And this is about the Lord's bondservant. The Lord's bondservant. And a bondservant is really a slave. This is someone who is not working for pay for somebody else, like some servants do. This is someone who is owned and controlled by a master. That's what he means by bondservant. How must he live? Well, our text says he, ha- he cannot be quarrelsome. Verse 23 says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. He can't be quarrelsome. Now, the false teachers there in Ephesus were being quarrelsome. Paul is telling Timothy, you've got to be different from them. They're speculating. They've got all these these vain arguments and bickerings and wranglings going on about genealogies and things that don't matter. He says, don't be like them. Don't be quarrelsome. In fact, when Paul tells Timothy and Titus the requirements for elders, he tells them that elders can't be quick-tempered, they can't be pugnacious, they have to be uncontentious, and they must be self-controlled. All of that tells you that they, they can't have a quick temper. They can't fly out of anger towards somebody that does something they don't like. They have to respond graciously and calmly and gently and kindly, even to insults and people that are haranguing them. Timothy was being provoked. Don't you know that? In, in the church at Ephesus. He was being provoked by all of these other people saying all of these things. And Paul is telling him, you can't go on quarreling with them. You need to be a patient, humble, gentle man. And then we find, secondly, not only can he not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to all, including these false teachers. Kind to everybody. And the word kindness means it's somebody who sees a need, has compassion on that person, and then meets the need. That's what kindness is. Timothy was being called to be kind to everybody. The whole flock, no matter if they were troublemakers or not. (laughs) He was to see needs, have compassion on needs, and meet needs. And then thirdly, he was to be able to teach. Able to teach. There is only one skill or one competency that is given to us in the Bible for an elder, a shepherd, a pastor. And that is he has to be able to teach. Now Paul told Timothy back in chapter 2 verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So he must be able to study and understand the word of God accurately, but he has to go further than that. Then he must be able to communicate it. He has to be able to take it and teach somebody else what the truth is. So the Lord's bondservant is not quarrelsome. That's the negative. On the positive positive side, he is to be kind to all, able to teach the Word of God. So every elder, every shepherd in a church, in some form or fashion, needs to be able to teach. Whether it's teaching children or counseling or teaching adults or whatever it happens. It can be in small groups or from the pulpit. doesn't matter. They have to be able to communicate truth. And then thirdly, he must be patient when wronged. And of course, we know from the context that would have to do with these false teachers who are wronging him. He has to be patient with when he's wronged. The word patient means long-suffering. Sometimes we think of patient as someone who can, who's just able to wait a long time. He just waits and waits and waits and he's okay with that. That's not what this word means. It means he suffers over and over and over again without lashing out. He has a really long fuse. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't take revenge. He bears all patiently. That's the idea here. He's patient when wronged. And then the other listing here is he must be able to gently correct those who are in opposition. So not only does he have to know God's word and teach it, but he has to have the courage 
to correct people when they are wrong. Now, what was going on in the church there that Paul was going to have to correct? Paul's teaching. It takes courage to do that. It's a lot easier just to kind of look the other way and hope things get better. They rarely do. (laughs) And of course, Jesus taught us that if your brother sins, to go and reprove him in private. And so what he would do in this situation is not, not publicly rebuke this man. He would take him in private and he would expose the error of his teaching. And he's to do it in a particular way, isn't he? He's to do it gently. Why do you suppose he would have to do this gently? Exactly. Yeah. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So if you have a harsh word towards this man and just get in his face and start getting angry and lose your temper, it's not going to do any good. Probably. It's going to make him more set in his error and determined to keep spreading it. So we are to go to him gently, hoping and praying that God will turn away uh, wrath and cause there to be a receptivity to the truth you're trying to communicate. So we go humbly, meekly, gently, kindly, but courageously. And we speak to the brother who's in error and try to correct him, do our best to correct him. So that's how must the Lord's bondservant live. He's to live in an unquarrelsome manner. He's to be kind to all. He's to be able to teach. He's patient when wronged, and he gently corrects. Now, What's going to be the result when he lives that way? Well, let's keep reading. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. There are four things here that I want you to see. The first one is if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Two words to think about. Perhaps and grant. So what is the word grant all about? It's talking about a gift, isn't it? If God may give repentance. Well, that tells us that repentance comes from God as a gift, doesn't it? Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Repentance is not something the sinner drums up from within himself. He doesn't have it within himself. His condition, as we're going to find out in this text, is that he's held captive by the devil and ensnared by the devil to do his will. He does not have repentance within him to muster up. So repentance comes as a gift from God. And notice the word perhaps. What does that tell you? It's up to God or not whether he gives this gift. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you give gifts, it's up to you whether you're going to give the gift or not. No one can extort it from you. No one can lay claim because it's a gift. A gift is something you give freely. And if you give it freely, you have the option of whether to give it or not to give it. Paul is saying God may or God may not give the gift of repentance. We don't know. But he might. And that's why you need to deal gently correcting this person because that tends that will tend towards God giving a gift if you get harsh and in his face and get angry you're probably not going to see that gift flow through your ministry to that person but if you deal kindly and gently and meekly there's a much greater chance that God will work through your ministry to grant this gift of repentance so the first thing that is a result is God perhaps granting the gift of repentance secondly He says, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So, repentance leads to truth. You would have thought it's the other way around. That truth might lead to repentance, but not according to Paul. You see, when God grants the gift of repentance, that does something to enable us to be able to to see truth. As long as we are held captive to sin, we're blinded to sin. We're blinded from truth. But when God grants repentance and we begin turning from sin, all of a sudden we find that Bible that was a closed book to us beginning to show light. We start to see things we didn't understand before. The confusing becomes clear to us. So repentance leads to the knowledge of the truth. The truth. And I believe he's talking here about the truth of the gospel. 
That's what he mentioned back in 1 Timothy 2, 5. The truth of the gospel. And number three, that they may come to their senses. This word for coming to their senses is the word for someone who's drunk. He's in a drunken stupor and he's being sobered up. Or someone who's in a really deep sleep and they're coming to, they're coming out of sleep. Have you ever had surgery when you know they put you to sleep and you're trying to come out of it and you have a hard time and you're drifting in and out of reality? That's the word here. I remember a time when I was a teenager, I had a car at this time and my younger sister Julie, I hope she watches this video. I'm going to tell her to watch this video. <laughs> but she stole my car. She was like 14 years old or 13. And every night she would go and get my keys and take my car for a spin because she just loved to drive. And my mom came out to where I was sleeping. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail. I had a little, like a dollhouse uh, with a camper stuck on the end of it. That was my bedroom. It was kind of strange, but th this little dollhouse thing connected to a camper, and that was my bedroom. My mom, my mom comes in the middle of the night, must have been like 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and I was out of it. And I remember her trying to wake me up, and I just couldn't get awake. Finally, I was finally able to get awake. But that's the idea here, that these people may come to their senses, may wake up or sober up. Sinners are sleeping. Sinners are drunk on sin. They have not come to their senses, which implies that they're out of their right mind, right? If you have to come to your senses, it means you're out of your right mind. And people who are living in sin do not see reality. All they see is the glitter of this world. That's all they can see is this world, time and sense. They don't see eternity. They don't see heaven. They don't see salvation in Christ and glory. They don't see the work of the Spirit. They don't value what God values. So what's our job? Wake them up. Sober them up. Pray that God will give them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth so that they can come to their senses and see reality for what it is. And then the final one is an escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. What's the condition of the unregenerate person according to the Apostle Paul? He's held captive to, to Satan. He's held in his snare. And we know what a snare is, right? Birds, you lay these traps for birds or for animals. And when that snare springs on their leg, it catches them so that they cannot get loose. About the only way they could get loose is to, to bite their leg off and then try to crawl away. But no, they're trapped. They're, done. they're, they're going to die. They're going to become food for the hunter. There's nothing they can do to release themselves from that snare. The Bible says that was our condition before we became Christians. We were in the snare of the devil. Held captive. He had his chains on us. You say, well, Brian, what about free will? Doesn't everybody have free will? No. <laughs> they, they have free will in one sense. They're free to choose whatever sin they want. They don't have free will to change from being a sinner to a saint. That's beyond the realm of possibility for someone who's ensnared to the devil and held captive. They're slaves. They've got a ball and chain carrying around. They don't have the ability just to say, oh, i just get rid of this ball and chain. They're dead and they're trespasses and sins. So this passage is teaching us, folks, that we need to be on our knees. If we want to see this church make disciples that makes disciples, we've got to be people of prayer because we can't do it and they can't do it. God can. There is nothing impossible for God. We have people sitting here this morning within the last two years that have been changed from saints or from sinners to saints. And it's been a work of God. And we should redouble our efforts in prayer, folks. We should take this fasting and prayer day seriously. And we should really fast and we should really pray. And we should seek God with all of our hearts. And in our private lives, and I speak this to myself because I don't think that my prayer life is what it ought to be. We need to be thinking about how can we carve out time just for prayer. And I'm glad the men are meeting down here once a week now for prayer for an hour or an hour and 15 minutes, whatever it is. Those are good things. We need to be calling on God to do the miraculous, the impossible. With men, remember they asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Jesus said, with men, it's impossible. Possible. He didn't say it's hard. He said it's not possible with men. 
But with God, it's possible. There is nothing impossible with our sovereign God. So we need to redouble our efforts to pray. And, and if there are loved ones on your heart, pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. So we have Paul's teaching to Timothy. If you want to be useful to the Master, he says, be a clean vessel and be a kind servant. Now this has special application for leaders within the church. There's no doubt about that. The Lord's bondservant was a, a term for people who were served as elders and pastors within local churches. That's what Paul is talking to Timothy about. But it has application for you too. Every one of us need to be clean vessels. And every one of us needs to be willing to teach and correct and reprove with all meekness and humility and gentleness and kindness, when the Lord directs us to do that. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. Now, he's not talking to just pastors there. He's talking to the church. Church, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. That's a command laid upon all of us. And so this has application for all of us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you really love somebody else and you see them drifting off into sin, you will be an unfaithful, unloving friend if you do nothing. Now, I know that's hard for us because we hate confrontation. would much sooner just pray for them and just hope God does something. But that's not what God is commanding us to do. And if you know people who have been in fellowship and it seemed as if they were seeking God and they start drifting off, then you and I, all of us, need to do something about that. That's the Word of God to us. So my exhortation for you today, Jesus is the Master. He has bought you with a price. Be a clean vessel that He can use. Be a kind servant that He can use. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, would you truly do that work in our hearts today? We desire to be clean vessels, kind servants. We desire that you would be able to use us, that we would be useful to you, our Master. In Jesus' name, amen.